you can't tell people what to do. You can't give people the answer. You have to give them the information that they need to find the answer and then let them come up with the solution themselves. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Bryce Hoffman, best-selling author, speaker, and on-consultant. Yes, he believes in the power of individuals to transform companies and cultures through great leadership and applied critical thinking. He's the author of two fantastic books, American Icon, where he worked with Alan Mulally, the CEO of Ford and previously Boeing, to understand his working management methods, and the more recent book, Red Teaming. He's one of the world's foremost experts in decision support, revolutionary methodologies inspired by the US and intelligence agencies to deal with complex, rapidly changing worlds. It's a pleasure to know Bryce. He's also a fellow nobody. I'm excited to see what we're going to build together in Nobody Studios. But for now, let's figure out how his journey got started. It was when I was finishing my first book, American Icon, you know, Barry, what the writing process is like. You're sending chapters as you finish them to your editor and to your publisher and, and getting feedback. And this was my first book. I'd never written a book before. I was behind massively on my deadline. I'd taken a year off from my job at the Detroit News. I had a year's leave of absence that was rapidly running out. Deadlines looming. Not Deadlines looming. Exactly. And as I started to send the meteor chapters in to my editor at Random House, he called me and he said, I hope you're thinking about what the consulting practice you're going to launch around this book is. I said, what? I said, I'm trying to get the damn book finished. You know, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I'm not a consultant. I'm a journalist. And he's like, look, I'm going to tell you right now, when people start reading this book, yeah. they're going to want to implement the ideas in this book. And when they want to implement the ideas in this book, they're going to call you and ask you to help them do that. And I was just like, leave me alone and let me finish the damn book because- I have 10,000 words to write today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was so stressed. People push back when I've told this, them this and they said, oh, surely you wrote the book because you knew it was going to lead to a big consulting practice and blah, blah, blah. And I, absolutely not. I was trying to tell a story. My first book was about the turnaround of Ford Motor Company, the leadership of Alan Mulally. And I just thought it was a great example for businesses to learn from. And I thought that the story was my way of sharing that example. But he was right. And when the book came out, almost immediately, I started getting calls from companies saying, hey, we read this book. Can you come and talk to our leadership team about these ideas and stuff? And then they go in and talk to the executives at XYZ Corporation about this. And then they'd say, hey, can you help us implement these ideas? And next thing I knew, I was quitting my job at the Detroit News and starting a consulting practice, but I was totally unequipped to do this because I hadn't planned for it. I hadn't thought about what it meant to do this. And so I kind of found myself jumping into the deep end of the pool without knowing how to swim and pedaling, paddling furiously to keep my head above water initially. I love this as well, right? Because it's, it's such a great example of unintended consequences in a positive way. But also, like you say, it's a huge unlearning moment for you. Your mental model is, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer, I'm sharing this story. Like you wrote the book with Alan as well. Such a phenomenal leader, probably one of the greatest we've seen. 
I imagine like your mindset at this stage is just enjoying that process of interviewing and writing and that's your your sort of sweet spot. Right. And now this whole new world emerges to you unanticipated, which is always fascinating. And yet you dive right into it head first, as you say, right into the deep end to figure it out. So what were some of the things you had to unlearn on that journey from shifting from this notion of a, a journalist, which is maybe you're sort of sharing insights or gathering it and synthesizing and sharing back to people to actually helping teams figure these answers out for themselves? Like what what great leadership might look for them. So what were some um, of the, the things along the way that you found interesting or as you were going through that process? Well, Barry, you just hit the nail on the head, which is figuring it out for themselves. That was the big thing that I had to unlearn. So Alan's leadership model, for those who aren't familiar with it, working, what she calls his, his working together management system is based around a concept that he calls the BPR process or business plan review process. It's a weekly meeting where you kind of take the pulse of the entire business, find out where the problems are and, and get the people assigned to address them. And it's a very elegant, light, streamlined way of running any size organization, but particularly large global corporations. Anyways, the very first company that hired me to help them implement the system, which was a Fortune 15 company, and they picked one division to roll it out in. And they said, oh, this is great. Can you help us implement Allen's management system here? And I said, absolutely. And so the president of this business unit assigned me one of his vice presidents to work with and uh, gave me three months. And she and I had tons of meetings in which we talked about what were the challenges and opportunities the organization was dealing with. How does the business work? What are the key things you need to understand about the business? Really getting into how the sausage was made. And then I was like, now I'm going to build them a beautiful PowerPoint. Beautiful picture. <laughs> because Alan's <laughs> system relies on every executive has a set of slides that they deliver. So I was going to build their slide decks for them. I was like, I was so infatuated with this concept because that Ford slides at the time, Alan, they were pretty rudimentary. And I was like, I'm going to make these beautiful. I'm going to make them look gorgeous and they're going to be beautiful and they're, and they're going to be so, I'm going to improve on his model. So we spent three months, we built the hundred plus slides that would be divided up amongst all the members of the management team to fill out. And I trained the president and how to lead the meetings and all this stuff. And then he had his kickoff meeting and I was so proud of myself. I was so excited to hear how he did. And we had a call scheduled and after action review scheduled the next day. And I called him up and I said, so how did it go? And he said, it was a friggin' train wreck. <laughs> And I, and I said, what? What? He said, I've got half of my direct reports threatening to resign. I had one person already come into my office and quit over this. And I you know, talked him off the ledge. Everybody's upset. And he said, we need to get this sorted out. So at the time, Alan was still, still CEO of Ford. He's been a tremendous mentor to me and, and a tremendous friend. And so I, I called Alan up in Dearborn. And I said, Alan, what did I do wrong? I did everything the way that I learned from you. I captured all the different aspects. I tracked everything back to the plan. I did all of the things I learned from you. And it was a disaster. And he said, what did you just say? He said, you did. And I said, yeah, I did. I, you know, I came, I did this for three months. He's like, but you did it. They didn't do it. And I was like, what? And he said, look, Bryce, he said, 
when I came to Ford from Boeing, because he'd been the president of Boeing before he famously came over and, and saved Ford, he said, I, I could have brought the slide decks from Boeing and just passed them out, you know, and given the CFO from of Ford, the CFO's deck from Boeing and head of manufacturing, the head of manufacturing's deck from Boeing and told him, you know, just erase airplane and put car and fill yeah. these out. He said, but the same thing would have happened just happened to you. He said, people would have been upset. They would have resented this intrusion into their leadership. He said, I explained the concepts to them and then asked them to tell me what was the important things that they needed to track about their part of the business. And, and he told me if, if they don't build it themselves, and this goes in, Barry, to the whole concept of adult learning. This was my big takeaway yeah. from this. Yeah, huge. Is, yeah. Is you can't tell people what to do. You can't give people the answer. You have to give them the information that they need to find the answer and then let them come up with the solution themselves. So I went back and I said, we're going to start over on this. Let me come in and explain to folks why this system works and tell them the Ford story, tell them how Alan developed the system at Boeing, how it worked there, how he used it at Ford, explain the core concepts, and then let me help them, then let them build the system. And that's how I switched to that model of having people say, what do you think are the most important things you need to share about your part of the business? Because what I was doing by just handing them the slides was imposing a whole other process on top of what they were already doing that wasn't theirs, they had no understanding of, no buy-in to. And so my big thing I had to unlearn was going from telling people to showing people and letting people do for themselves. Yeah, no, that's such a great one. I've fallen into that trap myself many times. It's a great story to share. And thank you for that. Because it, sometimes that's the way it's almost like we're conditioned to believe. I've got the system. I've got the answer. I'll guide people through it. And they'll fill out the templates and everything's going to be great. But you say that can land like a thud because it can feel like, they don't own it. I love the way you're sort of sharing this in terms of like making people feel like they own it, that they've agency. You're guiding them really by setting the context and sharing concepts and then letting them bring it to life so they own it. And it's such a, a really important philosophy in all walks of, of work, I think, to get people bought in. When I started my second company, Red Team Thinking, what I, I really took that to heart and I decided from day one that we call ourselves unconsultants because we don't tell people what the answer is. We come in and give them tools that they use to find the answers for themselves. And I think that's so important is it's a completely different approach. And it was a result of my unlearning this whole process that I was able to recognize that the opportunity is to teach people how to find the answers for themselves. And that's a much more powerful thing than coming in and telling them, here's what you should do. Totally. Yeah. And like that's the magic. It's the classic analogy. If you teach people how to fish, they're going to be fine, right? But if right. you just do the fishing for them, right, they're lost. And I've, I've seen that many times in different companies that had the pleasure to, to work with and see is that people were not teaching people how to solve problems for themselves. And that's such a, a powerful, scalable solution. Let's jump forward then a little bit into your red team thinking world, right? So American sure. Icon, fabulous book. I can't recommend people read it enough. You know, it's one of my favorite books. But you sort of then found this whole other realm, really, after having this great opportunity to spend time with Alan and learn from him and very closely, you know, understand his thinking about how he helped both Boeing and Ford become phenomenal companies or turn them around in many ways. And then you sort of shifted your whole thinking to this notion of red team thinking. 
maybe could you explain to people who've never even heard that term before what it's about and how you found your way from, you know, inside you know, one of the biggest corporate America sort of companies that comes and then suddenly you're sort of playing around in military strategy and testing. So <laughs> tell us how you make that shift. Yeah. Well, some more unlearning involved in that for sure. So red team thinking is a cognitive capability that helps individuals and organizations engage critical thinking, enable distributed decision making. And this last part is really one of the most important things, encourage diversity of thought. And all of these things are done to help people make better decisions faster in the complex world that we live in today, because a lot of the tools that we've learned in business school or wherever, we're really not well suited for this. There's a term the military uses called VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity world that we live in today and operate in today. It seems like a big jump, but it was really actually a natural evolution for me. Because what happened, Barry, is as I started helping companies implement Allen's management system, I realized there was an important element missing in what I was doing, and that was Allen. And that might seem like a no-brainer, but when I say what was missing was Allen, I don't mean the charismatic CEO, which Allen definitely was, and, and that's one of his superpowers. One of the things that I, that I realized was another one of Alan's superpowers is he was one of the best, for lack of a better term, what I would call constructive contrarians I've ever encountered. So Alan was constantly asking why. I'll just share a short story that that yeah, really please, exemplifies yeah. this. His very first week at Ford Motor Company, they'd assembled every car and truck they sold worldwide in a big design studio because he wanted to see what the product lineup looked like. And the engineers and the designers, senior engineers and designers at Ford thought this was kind of going to be a kind of a warm, fuzzy event where they were going to get to show off their wares and, you know, meet the new boss. And he walked in and they said, oh, you know, Mr. Rillon, here's the F-150. It's the best selling vehicle in the United States. And here's the, and he said, where's the Taurus? Now this was 2006 and Ford had just discontinued the Taurus six months before. And so one of the engineers said, oh, well, it's not here, Alan, because we discontinued it six months ago. And he said, why'd you discontinue it? And they said, well, it really wasn't selling very well. It was only selling to rental car fleets. He said, why was it only selling to rental car fleets? It was the best-selling car in America for many years running. He said, well, we stopped investing in it, moved on to other things. Why'd you stop investing in the best-selling car in America and move on to other things? And the engineer who was telling me this story said, this event in the space of five minutes went from being this kind of meet and greet to one of the most intense sessions he'd ever had in his career. Not because Alan was being a jerk about it, but just because he kept asking why. He kept saying, why? Why did you stop investing in this? And, you know, in the space of five minutes, this had become a discussion of some of the core structural systemic issues of Ford Motor Company. And that's just one small example amongst many. And so as I began to work with other organizations to help them implement his management system, I realized that it only could do so much without that constructive contrarian approach to it. And so I started looking for a way to help people learn how to approach things like that. And I discovered this concept called red teaming, decision support red teaming that had been developed by the military and intelligence community after 9-11, after we had what was famously described in the United States as a colossal failure of imagination by senior leaders that led to the terrorist attacks being able to happen and other things. And this was also a product of unlearning 
as a result of the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. And so when I found out about this, I found out that there was a program to train senior military leaders in these tools and techniques, this methodology. I called it the Pentagon and asked if I could go and audit the course there. And ultimately, because I'm persistent, was able to get them to let me. And that became the topic of my second book, Red Team, which was to take these tools and techniques that were developed for this very high stress, high stakes, complex world of the military and intelligence community, and then port those ideas to business to help business leaders apply the same constructive contrarian approach, the same applied critical thinking approach, the same groupthink mitigation approach to make better decisions in their organizations. Because one of the things that I think every business leader struggles with today is waking up in the morning and not knowing what they don't know. I think that's an anxiety that every leader suffers from. And what Red Team Thinking at the end of the day is designed to do is help you figure out what you don't know and develop your plans, make your decisions so that they're resilient enough to deal with what you know and don't know. There's so much to unpack in these stories. Christ, they're fabulous. First of all, the thing that struck me about your story about Alan being in the design studio and going through and like sort of asking questions of the team, it's one of these skills that I think some amazing leaders have, and you're obviously teaching with this system, is often to ask very simple questions that start quite broad, actually, and then really, really drill into specifics, right? It's one of these traits I've seen with great leaders is they almost ask novice questions by design to open with. So they really get this breadth of understanding of information about like, why are we doing these certain things? What's the company about? But literally within two or three steps, as you even described in your story, suddenly you're at the real heart of some of these really deep issues about how the company is operating, it, the culture. There's great tells about right. why did we stop investing in the best-selling car in the U.S.? We're probably selling fleets to a rental company. So why did we do that? And often people won't have the answers and that's okay, but it's really interesting the process to go through. That's fascinating to hear you talk about that. And then recognize this notion of a, a Voku world, I think is really, really important. We've never it been is. a more ambiguous, high uncertainty, a constant moving sands type world that we live in. And it sort of goes back to your first story of if you go into that world with a printout plan and templates just to be ticked off and think that you can apply a sort of copy and paste framework and just like drop it on what worked in Boeing is exactly going to what's going to work in Ford or going to work in this Fortune 15 company and how, you know, you're going to have some of the results that you already described. Right. They're not contextualized. So having a system as you know, you've discovered through the US military had built to deal with specifically with uncertainty and what you don't know and discovering that is super powerful. So tell us a little bit more about some of these steps, because I think that's going to be fascinating for folks, because I imagine most of the listeners are sitting here going, I'm dealing with uncertainty every day. I'm struggling with it. I'm me starting Nobody Studios, right? We've got like hundreds of companies we're building every day I wake up it's what's on fire the most and how can I help the team like dampen it a little bit and then start another fire. So tell us yes, a little bit yes. about this. It's really an entire toolkit of 
cognitive tools that are designed to support decision-making by opening up to us what may be on the horizon that we're not thinking about. What are the different ways in which the future could unfold? What are the, not just the unseen threats, but the unseen opportunities that lie out there? Because it's, it's not just about avoiding risk. It's about seeing the opportunities in the chaos that exists. And the way that we, we do this is through teaching people how to apply these tools to their own organizations. And, and there's broadly three sets of tools. There's, there's a group of tools that we call analytical tools that are designed to help us break our plans and our decisions down into the assumptions that they're based on and then to challenge those assumptions. Because that seems like such an easy thing to say, and yet something that we almost never do is really, really take the time. Really hard, but really easy if you have a format for doing that. And so that's what we provide with the tool, for instance, we call Assumptions Challenge, is to simply map out what are the assumptions in this, and then let's take and stress test those assumptions and see which of those assumptions are likely to prove true when we execute this plan. And which assumptions are weak and what can we do to modify the plan to either not have to rely on those weak assumptions or to make those assumptions stronger? That's an example of the kind of analytical tools and techniques. Then we have another group of tools and techniques we call imaginative tools. Imaginative tools are designed to kind of look into the proverbial crystal ball and try to understand how the future could unfold. So there's a very powerful tool, for instance, that we use that was developed by Dr. Gary Klein, who's, who's someone we've had the privilege to work with a lot, one of the great cognitive scientists in the world today, and called premortem analysis. And in a premortem analysis, you look at before you execute a plan, everyone knows what a postmortem is. Before yeah. you execute a plan, you ask yourself, if this plan fails, what does that look like? What does failure look like? And then marching back from that failed state to the present, what are the things that we could do to modify our plans so that that failed state doesn't happen? And then finally, we have a whole other group of tools we call contrarian techniques that are designed to help us kind of challenge the plan itself and and force us to come up with different options. Because the way that most individuals and most organizations make decisions, this is provable scientifically, the the default decision-making mechanism for most organizations is what scientists like Gary Klein call satisficing. And yeah. satisficing means simply working on a problem until you come up with the first viable solution and then executing that. And the problem with that is, what if the best solution is not the one, first one that occurs to you? And because you stopped there and begun executing, you've missed the opportunity that that other one presents. And some people will hear that and they'll say, oh, I don't have time for that. It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of perspective. It's yeah. a matter of, spending just a few minutes forcing yourself to come up with another idea and then looking at those and weighing those things like that. And again, we have structured ways of doing this that make it a lot easier for people. But that's really what red team thinking is about, is giving people these tools to help them understand how the future could unfold, the challenges and opportunities that lie there, and how to make the best decision in the present as a result. It's great because my simple reaction, even hearing you, these are all things that are really important to do, but people never do. And I see this again and again and again, right? Assumptions mapping, great example. People never really talk about assumptions because they're often implicit. It's always the implicit assumptions that I find trip teams up. Where 
the stuff that goes unsaid because maybe we don't need to say it because maybe we know how or we think how things operate. I just think it's such a healthy exercise. Is is one of the founding principles of even lean startup ideas as well is what's our riskiest assumption and how can we test it or pressure test it as quickly as possible to find out if we've a viable business here. So that resonates massively. Right. And these things don't take that long to do. You can do that in a few minutes if you know how to do it. And if it's something that you've learned and practiced, that's the thing is, is learning these tools and then practicing them. Then when you're operating in the real world with them, it just becomes something you do quickly. I learned about how to challenge assumptions when I was at beautiful Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, going through the Army's Red Team Leader course back in 2015. By the time I graduated from that course, I couldn't stop myself identifying assumptions in plans I was thinking about. Even simple plans like, you know, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? The shopping list. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Because it's just, it's about training your brain to do this. And this is the thing is these things are not hard. And they're things that, to be honest, Barry, schools used to do a better job of teaching yeah. than they do now. And it's something that is desperately needed because if you look at it, I mean, there's so many, so many examples of this that I could share, but I'll just, I'll just share one. World Economic Forum did a survey of CEOs two years ago, and they asked, what are going to be the most critical skills in your organization over the next 10 years? And the two by far top were critical thinking and problem solving, problem which is problem exactly thinking. what we're talking about here. Then they asked them, what skills are most lacking in your organizations? Critical thinking and problem solving. And then they asked them, what are the skills that are hardest to recruit for it? Critical thinking and problem solving. Why? Because people aren't trained in these tools anymore. So this is all about getting people rapidly trained up in these core cognitive capabilities that everybody needs to make good decisions today. Yeah, like I think we have a shared gripe with that too as well. It's one of these things where I feel like we're conditioning people from an early age through educational systems. I'm not blaming the education system here, but it's just we start the process of the success is knowing the answer, getting the right answer. The two plus two is four. I know it's four because I learned my two timetables, a very structured way to like repeat or regurgitate information. There's no critical thinking involved there. There's no like figuring it out. And and this is I think it's one of the reasons why Sir Ken Livingston's TED Talk is the most popular of all time is that he calls out this notion that we're not teaching people how to think critically, how to do the hard work of figuring out the answers for themselves. We're handing them the 100-page slide deck and saying, I'm going to test you if you can regurgitate everything's on the 100 slides that I just handed you. And that is correct. Not this notion that you even talked about at the top of the show of giving people guidance, inspiration, context, and then letting them go populate whatever their slides are. We, we're not doing that. We're Absolutely. teaching to regurgitate information. And it's a real frustration. I see it so, all. I'm, I am going to blame the education system on that, though, because yeah. the ed- education system, particularly in the United States, has shifted to teaching to the test. You incentivize the behaviors for better or worse. And if, if you're judging your teachers on how, how well their students do on standardized tests, then you're not incentivizing them to teach students how to think for themselves. You're teaching them how to take a standardized test. I'll be honest with you. I just gave a presentation at Whitehall in the UK a couple of weeks ago. It was a closed door session to 30 top government people, no cameras, no names type of thing. And someone asked me from government, what is 
the most important thing we could do to promote red team thinking. And I said, honestly, forget about red team thinking. The most important thing that you could do, as in you people run the British government, is you could make applied critical thinking, basic critical thinking part of the secondary curriculum again, because it should be, and it should be taught widely, and it would benefit the entire nation if you got this back in the curriculum again. Yeah, yeah. Can't disagree with that. Because it shows up again, when we get into corporate world, is that teaching to the test or playing to the test is people only will do things that they know they're going to get the right answer for. They don't take risks. They're afraid to be wrong because if they don't have the answer, their perception is how will they be treated because they're used to getting everything right and not taking any risk. They're only put their hand up when they're sure they have the answer. And what I find as well is the most innovative companies, the people might necessarily know the answer, but they've great systems to figure out what the answer might be. And they'll try things and some of those things will work and some of those things will not work. And they'll take both the information and use it to take another opportunity to take another chance and try something differently. And that's actually how innovation happens is absolutely process of trying, learning what works, what didn't work, iterating, improving. And being able to fail. If you don't have the ability to fail, you're never going to take the risks that are required to have real innovation. How many planes, how many prototypes did the Wright brothers fly and crash before they actually flew at Kitty Hawk? It's amazing because you have to be able to make those mistakes. And good companies are good at letting their R&D teams do stuff like this. But you know what very few companies are good at is letting their leaders do this. You know, people say there's so many bad leaders in the world. When people say that to me, one of the things I remind people is, yeah, you have things like the Peter Principle and people getting promoted beyond their skill set for sure. But there are very few people who don't fall into that dark triad Yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Who get up in the morning and say, you know what? I want to go and be a bad leader. I want to make my team miserable and I want to make everyone regret that they work here. Most people go to work and this is gets more and more true. The higher up you get in an organization, you have more to lose. Go to work trying to protect what they have and not get in trouble. To your point, to shave the right answers. And if that's your attitude and if that's what you incentivize your leaders to do is to, pardon my French, but cover their asses then you're never going to cultivate real leadership in your organization because real leaders aren't just worried about covering their asses. They're worried about enabling their teams, solving problems, innovating. And you can't do any of those things if your primary concern is protecting your own career. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like, I have to live this daily when we're trying to build nobody. I don't know the answers. I'm positive. I don't know what the answers are to build a company we need to build for it to be successful. And actually, sometimes I find just sharing that with the team saying, I don't know the answer. Do you know the answer? Or why don't we figure out a system to figure out how we build this thing? You can almost see on people's faces like the relief that they're like, great, right? It it opens up curiosity. It opens up the team to volunteer more things. Or what if we try this? Or how quickly could we learn if that works or not? And it sort of ties a little bit to your pre-mortem idea, again, which is, I think, another fabulous idea is getting people to think about what if it goes wrong? What if it goes right? Asking those questions actually before you execute is fascinating because it sort of starts giving people, again, another set of assumptions about if we're successful here, what could that look like? Which nobody thinks about. Absolutely, right? And invariably you find is people start talking about 
behaviors or signals that you can then start to use to look out for to say, well, it's probably not working if 40% of our customers don't start using the application within the first month. Suddenly, you've got these metrics that you can actually use to start guiding to say, well, if we're going in that direction, that we're talking about, that's not the path we want to go versus if something goes right and you start to see those early indicators, it gives you confidence to double down on the strategy you've chosen. It's such a healthy exercise to do as you're describing that doesn't take that long, but is very, very valuable. And yet it's never done. We just sort of come up with a plan and say, yeah, let's execute. And no one talks about what are the guide rails? What tells us we're on the right path, the wrong path? So it's really fascinating, again, to even hear that as a tool that's instituted into this system. It is. But I want to come back to something really important you said, Barry, a few minutes ago, which was the idea that you sharing with your team that you don't have the answers. That's real leadership. See, Mm. I think most leaders come in telling people what to do because they're insecure, because they're weak leaders, actually. And they don't have the confidence that they're in the position that they deserve to be in. And the way that they deal with that insecurity is to dictate, is to tell people what to do. They feel like they need to have all the answers. And I'll tell you a story, true story here. When Alan retired from Ford back in 2014, not surprisingly, CNN and a bunch of other news outlets called me to, to do shows about looking back at his career. And it was in New York, and I, I was on Maggie Lake's show on CNN. Great interviewer, great journalist. And we recorded a conversation about Alan and his legacy and what he brought to Ford and Boeing. And when we were done, we weren't filming anymore, and they were unmiking me and such. She said to me, she said, you know, I've probably had the CEOs of half of the Fortune 100 in your chair right there over the past however many years. And I've never met anyone like Alan Mulally. And I said, yeah, he's one of a kind. And we started talking about how needed his type of leadership is. And she said to me, why do you think there are so few Alan Mulallys in the world? And it's one of those things, Barry, where Sometimes somebody asks you just the right question in just the right way, and it yeah, almost yeah, yeah. breaks the entire ice on the river and everything flows out. Because without, I'd not thought about this before, but without even thinking, I said, because there's so many Jack Welches in the world. And I'm not <laughs> joking. She literally like sat back down in her chair and she said, oh my God. She said, you are so right. And we spent the next half hour until like her producer was like, we got to record something else. We got to go to the next <laughs> talking about the fact that Jack Welch created this model of leadership of being the guy who comes into the room, and it was almost always a guy who comes in the, in the room, blowing stuff up, shooting from the hip, all of his slogans, you know, and stuff, who's got the big ideas, the big picture, and that the job of the CEO is to be that rock star who comes in and just dazzles everyone. Yeah. But then you look at what happens, and I said this in 2014, Look at what's happened in the past few years. GE has undone everything that Jack Welch did because while it succeeded in the short term, it destroyed the company in the long term. And so Alan's model of leadership is much more humble. One of Alan's mantras that he taught me is seek understanding before seeking to be understood. And that's when you talk about telling your team, Barry, I don't know the answer to this. What do you guys think? That's seeking understanding before seeking to be understood. And that's real leadership. 
It's a great reminder, and thanks for highlighting that as well. It goes back to this point, even your example of sitting in that design studio again. It's like, how can you make a decision if you don't have all the information or the best information you can get? The only way you know you can do that is if, first of all, people feel safe, that they can speak up, that they can tell the reality that there is problems here, that something's not working right, or an assumption that we had is flawed. But whatever those things are, that's actually the really powerful part of a great culture is where it's okay to share truth-seeking in many ways and without judgment of the individual didn't do something or they let the team down or whatever that is. But it gives you the best information to make the best decisions based on reality. There's a lot to be said for nurturing that in businesses because it helps them be successful. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that we try to do with Red Team Thinking is a lot of our tools are, are used anonymized approaches for the simple reason that not every organization has the psychological safety that they need to be able to let people speak up and share what they really think. So we kind of look at these as training wheels that allow people to do that anonymously. And the reason I refer to them as training wheels, Barry, is because just like you learn how to ride a bike by starting with training wheels and you take the training wheels off, once people see the value of people speaking up, once leaders see the value of their teams giving them honest feedback, they want more of it. Yeah. And then you create that psychological safety. Right on. You know, there's no two ways about it. Good information leads to great decisions. There's no two ways about it. In looking forward then, you know, obviously, you know, you've done American Icon, you've done Red Teams Thinking, you know, you've been in a massive corporate America, you've been in the heart of the military. Where are you going next? Are you, are you going out to a playground to like fix the education <laughs> system? Like what, what, what? What's oh, our work, our work has just begun, Barry. Well, one of the things I'm doing, as you know, is joining you on this amazing journey at Nobody Studios. Yeah, we're a pleasure to have you. Honestly, it's a it's a gift to have you. So thank you. Well, thank you for introducing me to Mark and making all this happen. Because I, as I said, I think that what we're trying to do at Nobody Studios is red team company creation, red team venture capital, red team the way that businesses get started, which is, and by that, I mean, taking a different contrarian approach that isn't based on simply doing the same old thing over and over again. So that's one thing I'm doing. But, you know, just on the red team, red team thinking front, it's amazing to me. We're growing in, in ways that I never would have expected. And we're growing through people coming to us and saying, hey, can you help us? And so I'll give you one example that's something I never in a million years would have thought I would be doing is we're working with federal fire agencies in the United States, National Park Service, U.S. Forest Service, the teams that are responsible for coming in during these mega fires where you've got, in many cases, crossing state lines and stuff where you've got sometimes 100,000 people fighting the fire from federal, state, local, county, municipal fire agencies all coordinating together, sometimes the military supporting all these things and teaching them how to use these tools and techniques, how to make these life and death decisions on the fire line about where to deploy resources, how to work together effectively with all these different agencies. And that's not something that, that we ever set out to make part of our business, but it's because people came to us and said, hey, we, we heard about this. We've read your book. We'd like to apply this. And now we've got a great fire leader who's really well-respected nationally, Jason Coyle, who's leading our efforts in that. So we're really go- growing in areas. I would hate to predict what's next. Yeah, well, why, why should you? Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let it, let it ride, ride the wave. That's the way to do it. It's, it's fabulous. I mean, we're right. We're working with the Ukrainians right now to try to help them figure out how to train 
people who were school teachers and accountants three months ago how to be combat leaders? How do you develop a training program that gives them the tools they need to make good decisions under this incredibly high stress environment that they never thought they'd find themselves in? Well, look, it's fabulous to see that you're directing all your energy into meaningful things. You know, we're absolutely honored to have you with us on Nobody Studios and applying that, a lot of this thinking and tools on that mission and these fabulous missions. You're helping the folks in the Ukraine and the fire services. And I think we're only going to see more and more of a Volku world ahead of us, more crazy, more ways to make good decisions in complex environments. So yeah, highly recommend folks check out the book. Thanks again for doing the show and look forward to maybe having you on again and on the show to share some more of the different twists and turns that lie ahead for you. Always happy to. I love talking with you, Barry.